Each episode will focus on one event and attempt to answer the oftentimes not-so-simple question, who's to blame? I'm your host, Jonathan Ratchick. This podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Kramer and Levy and Ratchick PLLC and is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you think you might have a lawsuit, you should contact an attorney. For the residents of Champlain Tower South in Surfside, Florida, June 23rd ended like any other day. Parents tucked their children into bed after reading them a story. Older couples fell asleep after watching a late-night movie, while perhaps others found themselves having a late-night snack or shooting the midnight breeze with a friend. What followed early the next morning is unimaginable. At 1.30 a.m., without any warning, half of the building, a 13-story residential tower that was built in 1981, collapsed, killing almost all of the residents who were inside. As of this broadcast, 46 residents have been confirmed dead, with close to 100 still being reported as missing. Significantly, years before the collapse, a structural engineer, Frank Morabito, had warned the condominium that the building was suffering from major structural damage and that there was abundant cracking and crumbling of the columns, beams, and walls of the parking garage underneath the building. Despite his grim assessment, the necessary repairs were never performed. It was only within the last few months, more than two and a half years after the warning, that Champlain's condo board finally secured a line of credit to pay for the multi-million dollar repair work. In this episode of The Blame Game, we'll try to answer the question of, who's to blame for the collapse of the Champlain Towers? Who's legally responsible for what happened and the resulting loss of life? And to help us answer these questions, we turn to our guest, Michael Shillelagh of Michael Shillelagh Architects. Good morning, Michael. Morning, Jonathan. How are you, man? I'm doing great. It's great to see you again or to hear you again. Well, I want to really thank you for uh, joining us on The Blame Game this morning. Michael uh, Shillelagh is with Michael Shillelagh Architects. Michael, can you just tell us before we start a little bit about your practice? Oh, happy to do so, Jonathan. This is 30 years we're celebrating this year of... uh, practice in architecture and engineering. And um, for over those 30 years, we've uh, helped commercial, residential, industrial, and educational owners solve their building problems, protect their assets and investments, save money and staying under budget. And what we like to say is we help build their dreams and visions and take what uh, they've imagined uh, the spaces and the places they want to create and and make them a reality. So we're very excited about the work that we've done over the last 30 years. We're doing a little celebration uh, on our website with a timeline, and you'll see that coming out shortly, and a, and a social media um, challenge. Whoever can get the most likes or get the most votes is going to win a, uh, a golf shirt or, or a uh, a windbreaker. So we're, we're very excited about the 30 years we've been doing it. And, and as you know, Jonathan, this is a passion of mine to, to, I know to it build is. better buildings and, and build better communities and protect people's lives. You know, what, are, what are your thoughts about what just happened uh, in Miami? Oh, this is a, the Champlain Tower collapse, Jonathan. Is a, it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, and, and whenever there's such a tragedy and loss of life, I mean, it's natural to look for who is to blame and who is responsible but as a culture, you know, we've developed systems and laws to protect people from tragedies such as this. And what types of uh, and what types of laws are, you, are we talking well, about? We have building codes first and foremost, and uh, you know, the building codes created here in the United States over decades and centuries even are used now internationally. Uh, all the states in the U.S. now have adopted what's called the International Building Code, 
So, and, and they, they update it every three years. So they try to look at, you know, where the issues are and, uh, and really protect the public with, um, with robust codes and, and good enforcement. Now, another question that's on really on everyone's mind is, why exactly did this building collapse? And the reason I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people are wondering that is, you know, this wasn't a building that was just built overnight. This building has been standing for, I think, what, 40, 40 years now? I think it was up for a 40-year recertification That's Correct. You know, by the, uh, by the local government. And there are certainly, I don't think I need to tell you this, there are buildings that are much older than 40 years old, and it's not like they're collapsing. No you know, no they question. are. In fact, uh, this is a concrete building, and there's a concrete building 2,000 years old in Rome, the Pantheon. And so there's many possibilities why this building collapsed. I mean, it could have been that there was a problem with the initial design, or maybe the people building the building uh, 40 years ago didn't follow those design drawings. But I, I think more likely it's something that happened more recently, perhaps a, a lack of maintenance, which has been talked about. There's a sister building right next door that's in much better shape, that's been better maintained over the 40 years. And there's also some discussion of a potential uh, underground uh, condition that's changed, some geotechnical issues. Um, and it's going to take mm-hmm. some time to determine the reasons for the collapse. And my guess is it's going to be a combination of some of those things because we don't, really don't see buildings collapse in the United States. As I said, we have pretty good codes and laws protecting people um, from such an occurrence. No, and you and you pointed out that you know there were two buildings I think that were part of this development. One is still standing. This one collapsed. I mean, how do you explain that? Yeah, uh, they. I mean, they're built, they're built at Absolutely. the same time by the same construction Absolutely. company. Absolutely, and they talk about, uh, number one, being maintenance, is that, um, you know, two and a half years ago, there was a structural engineer who gave a report that there's some serious structural issues uh, at stake in this South Tower. And I had read another report that uh, someone looking to purchase a condominium bought a condominium in the North Tower specifically because that building was better maintained. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you look at preventative maintenance, um that if you don't maintain something, uh, certainly, uh, you know, you could have damage, although I don't recall something this catastrophic happening. So you, you talked about, you know, an earlier report. So who, generally speaking, who's responsible for inspecting you know, the structural integrity of a building? So I keep hearing, I keep reading about things in the news about, you know, a structural engineer who had inspected this building um, several years earlier, you know, a Frank uh, Morabito, who found there to be major structural damage to the concrete slab below the pool deck and abundant cracking and crumbling of the columns and beams of the parking garage under the building. Just as a, for general background, what exactly is a structural engineer? What do they do? Well, a structural engineer is, is an individual who's licensed by the state who can design buildings, bridges, and other structures. And, and they're particularly expert in understanding you know, the properties of various structural materials like concrete, wood, and steel, and the impact that loads have on those materials. Architects mm-hmm. also have the qualifications to design buildings and structures. We do all our own structural design in-house for our residential buildings, but when we do larger commercial or industrial buildings, we'll bring on a structural engineer who's more expert in it. On this podcast, Michael, we're always interested in finding out who, if anyone, is to blame for tragedies such as this. And from what, again, from what I've read so far, it seems like everyone's pointing the finger at, at this structural engineer, uh, Frank Morabito. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is it enough to say that there's major structural damage? Should he have warned the condo board that the building was at you know at risk of collapse or perhaps you know alerted the city's uh, buildings department about the structural problems that the building was having? Well, well, certainly it's natural 
to look for someone to blame at a time like this, but I really think we should not rush, rush to judgment. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are many reasons this could have happened, and uh, the, eng- the structural engineer Morabito, who um, did his recent uh, report, while he's closest to the event, I-, I don't really believe he's the one who can be held responsible for the collapse of the tower. Um, you know, we do many structural and building inspections in our office, and they're usually limited to what is visually perceptible at the time of our inspection. And often our inspections will ask for, you know, additional testing and inspections to confirm a condition that might be dangerous. Certainly there's x-ray studies you can do to um, analyze if the reinforcing, which is hidden in the concrete, is adequate. There's some destructive and non-destructive testing you can do on the concrete to determine its strength. Mm-hmm. So, you know, typically, uh, as you know, the building owners are responsible for the structural integrity of their buildings. And, and municipalities have laws that require owners to hire, you know, professionals like architects and engineers to um, to inspect their buildings. Well, let's see, but that's where, that's where I get concerned as a, you know, as a personal injury attorney. You know, we're always looking to identify the party that's legally responsible, you know, for an occurrence. And correct, you know, look, ultimately the building owners or, you know, the condominium board is ultimately responsible for maintaining the building in a reasonably safe condition and for addressing any problems that are identified by the structural engineer. But, you know, one of the board members, you know, I read, you know, was quoted as saying, look, they're they're the experts, not us. They're the ones who need to tell us, you know, what the risks associated with, you know, the structural problems are. We don't, we don't know about these things. And that's, you know, again, from a personal injury attorney's perspective, I'm wondering, yeah, you told me that there were problems with with the structural damage, but you didn't just really tell me what's the consequence of that. What does that mean? You know, does that mean that the building's going to collapse in the next month or two, five years down the road, 10 years down the road? Am I, is that implicit in, in the report that someone's just supposed to understand, to know what's going to happen? Yeah, I think many of those things are, are very tough to answer. And as you said, uh, Morbido did warn the board when he said major structural damage. And uh, as we've mentioned earlier, consultants don't always want to exaggerate the risks However, in this case, maybe it might have been better to be overcautious, uh, but you don't want to be alarmist. Um, certainly, there are times when we condemn buildings and we say buildings are unsafe to, to occupy. And uh, I don't think back in 2018, when Morabito did his report, that that was the case. But you had two and a half years now from the time he said there was major structural dra- damage that nothing was done. And ultimately, the building owners are responsible for their buildings. And the delay in addressing the Morabito report uh, was certainly consequential. A, a lot had, could have happened between 2018 and 2020. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, it interrupts, it almost interrupts any causal connection between any negligence on the part of Mr. Uh, Morabito and the building collapse, because like you said, two and a half years have elapsed during that time period. And what, if anything, did the building do? And if, from what I've gathered, <laughs> didn't do That's, anything. Yeah. I mean, I think finally this year they got you know, they got a line of credit to start addressing some of the uh, structural problems that he identified in the report. But other than that, no actual work was performed. And they should have, I'm sure they, they should have done some subsequent testing. And I'm sure his report said, you know, there should be some ongoing monitoring. Sometimes we put little uh, seismic devices on buildings that measure mm-hmm. movement or, or displacement. And there is some reports out there that this building was settling about two millimeters a year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but over 40 years, that's almost four inches. And if one part of a building settles four inches and the other doesn't, that differential sediment could lead to uh, something catastrophic. I've also read that perhaps they didn't use enough um, 
I guess, rebar in reinforcing some of these concrete pilings? Well, that's an interesting comment because you we actually design concrete structures to have less steel than they would normally need. So less steel is good for a concrete, concrete structure. And um, why is that? It's an interesting concept because concrete, as you might know, is very good in compression. So a concrete arch or vault or Correct. dome, like in the Pantheon, um, they'll last for thousands of years. But a concrete slab or a beam where the top part is in compression and the bottom part is in tension needs reinforcing steel to resist the tension because concrete doesn't do well. It cracks when it has a tensile force put on it. So we design concrete structures to have less steel than they would normally need because if you if a concrete structure is going to fail, you want it to fail slowly. You want it to begin to crack and to begin to show its failures, whereas if a concrete slab were to fail in compression, it would just explode and collapse. And, that, and then you'd have a catastrophic collapse. Correct. So when we design concrete, we do not want them to fail in compression. So we under-design the steel reinforcing. And, and I think one of the reports said, yeah, there was less steel, but that probably didn't lead to its collapse because there is a, a number of factors of safety in there. But all that's got to be looked at. Yeah. And again, like, and that's one of those things in from a legal perspective, whether or not there's any you know, we could find all of these faults, perhaps in the, uh, you know, in the building and construction, and maybe it deviated from the plans, but whether or not it actually was the, you know, proximate or legal cause or contributed to the building collapse still remains to be seen. So just because there, you know, you find, you know, something, you know, a deviation with the, uh, with the building's plan, you know, from the as-builts from the actual architectural drawings doesn't necessarily mean that it contributed to the building's collapse. It's just, it just might be a coincidental finding. That's correct. And, and trying to determine, especially now that uh, I think the, uh, the original architect has passed away, the builder has passed away 40 years later, the companies aren't even around. So trying to you know, assess blame and, and fault and, and collect damages is, is not an easy task after 40 years. And so that's an interesting segue you know, to, our, to another issue that, that I've read about is perhaps maybe the architect shares some responsibility or shares in the blame. Clearly, there's a lot of blame to go around in this case, and but perhaps the architect's at fault for contributing to the building's collapse. Apparently, the concrete slab below the pool deck uh, was flat and not sloped so as to allow water to run off. And I believe, you know, Mr. Morabito, the structural engineer, even went so far as to call it a major error in the original design of the building. And I know, Michael, this is a, an issue that's very dear to your oh, heart. Yeah. Yeah, what, what? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I did read that report as well. And uh, I wasn't too pleased with Morabito's conclusion in that in that particular respect. And certainly I'm biased as an architect. Uh, but, you know, I, I give objective opinions and we've been an expert witness on cases. So um, I could look objectively at, at that particular issue. And, you know, if the architect or the engineer who the structural engineer who worked for the architect did have a design flaw, then certainly they should be held responsible. As far as the flatness of the pool deck, um, I, I don't see that as a direct connection. Um, it probably would have been more of an issue for a slip and fall case because if water was ponding, you know, that would be something where you don't want ponding water, especially on a pool deck where it could be unsafe for people. And certainly it would be, um, it would be you know, disturbing to people walking around all this ponding around their pool deck. Uh, and, and proper Well, I think the concern is that if you have ponding, it's going to cause, it's going to accelerate the deterioration of the underlying, 
you know, concrete well, not decking. necessarily. If you have proper waterproofing and you maintain that waterproofing, even a flat deck, water would not penetrate the concrete. And obviously the pool, which is holding 30,000 gallons of water or 50,000 gallons of water, had a parking deck underneath it. And, you know, that concrete, you know, has to be waterproof as well. So we design pools, you know, on, on upper stories of buildings that... Um, contain water all the time. So you can, concrete can contain water and be waterproof. It's just got to be maintained. Going back to the architect, you, you've actually, you know, you've authored an article on this subject about, you know, looking back, you know, sometimes 10, 20, 30 years to the architect who designed the original building and holding them responsible. You have an article, Architects, Engineers, and Murderers. Can you tell us more, a little bit yeah, more about that? Yeah, I, uh, I wrote that a few years back when I was on the state board of the American Institute of Architects. I was vice president here in New York State uh, for government advocacy. And um, one of our missions was to try to get a statute of limitations on third-party lawsuits. Uh, New York and Vermont are the only states in the nation that don't have a statute of limitations. So in Florida, actually, um, there's a 10-year statute of limitations. So you know, you can't really sue the architect or an engineer for a design floor, you know, 40 years later, because usually those flaws are manifested much sooner than 40 years, if there was really a line. Sure. And um, so, you know, architects, engineers and murderers are the only ones who don't have a statute of limitations. <laughs> I mean, you guys, attorneys have a three year statute of limitations. Uh, Doctors, three years. And so I went through all the professionals and everyone has a nice short statute of limitations, even criminals. And when I presented this to one of the senators here in New York trying to get our legislation advanced, he said, yeah, you know, um, uh, robbers, uh, even pedophiles have a statute of limitations and and not architects (laughs) or engineers. It just didn't seem fair. Certainly, you know, architects uh, look out for our clients and our communities, but we also should look out for ourselves as well. And there is a a great amount of risk for architects and engineers. We have personal liability for anything we do that may be negligent or cause cause, uh, um, someone injury. I'm just trying to think. Is there anything else you think that we need to cover on this? Well, I just hope that, um, you know, they can... uh, uh, rescue or re- retrieve all of the uh, the lost souls because that certainly gives the families some some solace that um, their loved ones we did a yeah i was going to say i think identifying um or pinpointing a cause of this collapse can certainly um look it's not going to bring back you know the people who've uh, whose lives have been lost but it could certainly give their surviving family and loved ones some some solace oh, yeah, a sense of justice and that um you know, perhaps this won't happen again. And that's the way most of these codes and laws have developed, Jonathan, over the years. Look, we always say in the profession, you know, sadly, so many of our, you know, laws and regulations are born out of tragedies and disasters. I mean, that's just, that gives, unfortunately, the the impetus that um, sometimes we need to enact laws and regulations that ultimately save lives. No question. And that's what it's about. Well, Michael, I really want to thank you for taking the time out for taking the time out to, uh, you know, to join us on the blame game today. No, this has been fun, Jonathan. Uh, uh, good luck with the podcast. I hear it's doing very well and I wish you all the best. Likewise. And uh, hope to see you uh, in person sooner rather than oh, later. Oh, most definitely. You're listening to the blame game. This episode was brought to you by Kramer Dunleavy and Ratchik PLLC. Come check us out at KDRPILawyers.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review.